Hello. Welcome to Nick's Midnight Premiere, a show where I talk to people about the movies they love. I'm your host, Nicholas Muir, and today my guest is Caleb Anderson. Hello. Hello, Caleb. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I have been looking forward to this day for a long time, and it is an absolute pleasure to be part of your podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad you could come on. So, Caleb, you know what's one of the most popular activities to do during the summer? Are we talking about things that have to do with water? Kind of. I'm assuming you want to go into swimming a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Going to the beach would definitely be something that a lot of people do during this time. Yes. Well, for most people in the summer of 1975, they want to stay as far away as from water as possible. Because today... We're talking about a movie that many people have considered the very first summer blockbuster, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Beautiful. Yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It is arguably the movie that made me want to go into the industry. So let's talk about Jaws. Yeah, uh, just a little um, quick general stuff about this. This is based off of a book that came out uh, the year before, 1974. A year later, the movie was released. That seems really fast to get such an adaptation out. Yeah, definitely. Um, and from what I remember, uh, I've watched, I can't keep up with the count. I've watched so many documentaries about this film. I'm, I'm fairly sure that the book was released with the intention to have a movie adaptation the moment it was dropped, which is why it went from book to movie so quickly. In fact, the author has a cameo in the film. Really? Yeah, he does. Um, so in one of the beach scenes, um, the, the what is he? He's not a camera guy. He's, uh, he's like the interviewer. He, he's kind of uh, having, I don't know if they were making a documentary in the film about the beach, but basically he walks up to the camera talking about how this town used to be so pretty and innocent, and now there's a shark here. And that was the author of the book. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You I learned something new. Until I learned it as well. All right. And, uh... You said that this book was published with the thoughts of having a movie immediately come out. You couldn't go wrong with a better director than Steven Spielberg. Well, and there's no other way to really kick the door open to your career for both Spielberg and John Williams. This kind of really set the tone for both of their careers. Yeah. Steven Spielberg's only 28 when this movie comes out. I'm not sure how old John Williams is. Right. But like you said, this kicks the door open for both their careers it's it it was truly the first summer blockbuster and it it just captured such a story and just made almost everything about the book perfectly scripted onto the film and uh i i honestly like looking back you know i mean hindsight's 2020 i couldn't think of another director especially another film scorer for this film because the moment you hear done done you don't even have to you don't even watch movies you already know what movie we're talking about just from done done exactly um i was watching a little short video before this and uh spielberg was talking about it and he said when john came to him and he just played those two notes on the piano he laughed at first he thought it was a joke and john was like no that's it (laughs) yeah no you're absolutely right um and that was the best part where like he kind of had this um because before john williams was a film composer he was a pianist he was a jazz pianist 
And so he was very known for being able to create beautiful melodic sympathies, uh, sympathies, symphonies. I have a lisp, I swear. So when he sat down, he kind of had the idea that he was going to come in with this eerie melodic symphony uh, that would basically set the tone for the film. And he sat down with two fingers on the far end of the, of the piano with the dun dun. And Spielberg said, I think, on, I don't know if it was in that documentary, but in, in an interview, it took a couple times to hear it, but finally he kind of came to a point where he was like, you know what, yes, this is going to be the tone. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Yeah, uh, the reason John Williams said that he just did these two notes is because you could do so much with it. It could be altered in so many different ways. You could play it slow, you could play it fast, you can play it loud, you can play it quiet, and it would have a different effect every time. And the main reason it came up with this is because... He only wanted this song to be played to advertise the appearance of the shark. Right. Yeah. So they, they kind of came to the conclusion that they wanted uh, that music to be played wherever the shark was. If the shark was in the scene, you would hear that key. If you were, if the shark was attacking someone, it would, it would speed up. Or if they wanted to add in the tension of the shark potentially being there, they added it in there. And it really helped force the audience to get used to, if we hear the music, the shark is there. And if we don't hear the music, we can assume the shark is not there. And that kind of led to the beautiful uh, scene where uh, Schneider's character, um, oh my goodness, this is my favorite movie and I forget his his, his, his character's name. Uh, Chief Brody. Brody, there we go, Brody. Uh, when Brody was uh, chugging the water and he said, come on out and chump some of this shit. And right after, the shark shows up. Most of the time when you see that, I've watched that movie so many times, there are still moments where I jump myself because the film such, does such a great job at making you feel like when you don't hear music, everything's fine. And so when that reveal came around, where you finally see the shark, it was extremely effective. I agree. <laughs> there's not there's not much I can uh, there's not much I can say to disagree with you on that. Uh, this main title is probably one of the top five most famous pieces in all of uh, movie history. Mm -hmm. I think it could be uh, in the same category as things like the main title from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I made a list. There are three <laughs> John Williams things on this besides... Can I take a guess? Go ahead. E.T.? No. Oh, okay. Uh, Jurassic Park? Yes. Star Wars? Yes. And you said there was another one? Yes. Harry Potter? So I actually have two from Star Wars. <laughs> it's uh, the main title and then the Imperial March. Imperial March, yes. And then the other one, uh, I just found out this is what it's called. It's called The Murder from Psycho. Yeah. The shower scene. I never knew what it was called. It's mm -hmm. just called The Murder. I'm pretty sure if you go onto Spotify, if you want to pull up the remastered album, it's literally The Murder with an exclamation point, And I love it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I promise you we'll talk about Jaws. Mm -hmm. We're not only going to talk about this one song. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, this movie had, um, it's a highly acclaimed movie. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, straight up eight on IMDb. Before Star Wars came out, it was the highest grossing movie of all time. Yeah. And at the 48th Academy Awards, it was nominated for four Oscars mm -hmm. and won three of them. John Williams rightfully won for Best Original Score, Robert L. Hoyt, Roger Heeman, Earl Mattery, and John Carter, not John Carter from Mars, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, won Best Sound, Verna Fields won Best Editing, 
And the only one it did not win was Best Picture due to this being the year of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. The director for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest also won. He did. Right. Oh, man. And I I don't know much about the pre-production or the production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but in my opinion, I think Spielberg alone from what he had to deal with on his set deserved Best Director. But I think that's from a biased opinion. It's okay. Everybody has their opinions. The thing that shocks me the most is this guy, Spielberg, came out with this movie, was not nominated. Like, not at all. Not, not at all. He, I guess maybe they're like, well, it was the guy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was nominated that right. year. But still, this, I, is, this yeah. is a young guy. This is his maybe second movie ever. I think he made The Color Purple, and that was the only other like credit he had up until this point like jaws really was his here i am film yeah two more things uh this has three main people as its stars it has richard dreyfus who worked with spielberg on this yep. close encounters of the third kind and then a movie called always that came out in 1989 robert shaw yes who um passed away three years after this movie was made mm. and then roy scheider who plays chief brody the thing that's the funniest thing about this is this takes place in Amity Island, which is apparently on Long Island. It, it is. Anytime I'm on the southern state and I pass the sign that says Amityville, I just I crack a smile. Yeah, Um. there's there's a part in the beginning of this movie where like we find out Chief Brody and his family just moved to Amity Island and he's like practicing his accent. His accent. <laughs> it sounds nothing like you're from right. Long Island. And I found out this movie's mostly shot in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, which right. definitely sounds like the way he's speaking. And the yad, not too far from the cat. Exactly. They definitely sound like Boston, New England Patriot fans. Exactly. So it was different. Maybe yes. that's how people from Long Island spoke in the 70s. But it's so funny. The first time I saw this movie, I was in middle school. I was in sixth grade. My dad, uh, who lives in Idaho, where I'm actually from, and um, that's where I saw it. And so whenever I would go and visit him, um, I would watch this movie and I would do that impersonation of, yeah, did not do fat from the cat. And now whenever I do impersonations of New York, it sounds more like Boston. And I think the reason why is because throughout my entire life, I assumed that that's how New Yorkers talked. But then it turns out that they shot this film in, in Massachusetts. So yeah. kind of shot myself in the foot there a little bit. Yeah. Good job, Spielberg. Yeah, I know, right? He's such a punk. Yeah. One of the best punks ever. Yeah, seriously. All right, so we've talked about our general comments. Let's dive into this movie. Yes, yes, that's what we're here for. I have this broken up into a few different categories. First category we're going to talk about is uh, there are a lot of stupid people in this movie. And it actually starts with like some of the first scenes in this movie. We have Chrissy, who's just like kind of like this hippie chick. And she wants to go skinny dipping, so she gets this other guy who's clearly drunk out of his mind. Do you think she was drunk when she made this decision? Because, like, I know that the film didn't really, like, dive into that. You know, there they was a bunch of, uh, I'm assuming they were college kids. Uh, yeah. They were definitely enjoying themselves. Um, and out of, they really focused on her when it came to sobriety. And I, I just always was like, I always assumed that she was completely sober. Yeah. Do she... you think she could have been tipsy? 
she could have been tipsy, but um, what we get into after this, she's the first person killed in this movie. Yeah. She goes skinny dipping uh, with no one else in the water. It's like super early in the morning. The sun's just coming up. The guy she comes with, uh, he's like passed out on the beach because he's like, I can't do this. Right. He like tumbles down the, the little sand dune and then just he has like his shirt halfway off and he just quits. Yeah. And um, this is the only thing that I don't feel she's tipsy about. Like when she first gets pulled under, yeah. she starts swimming like as fast as possible. And like she doesn't seem to be struggling at all. Right. Well, and what's really interesting about the human body is that you can be sober. But when those kind of things happen, your adrenaline will bring you back up. To, oh, yeah. To wherever you have to be. Uh, not saying that I'm not trying to pigeonhole her character or anything, but I was just like, you know, just thinking about it. I was like, who in their right mind makes that kind of decision? But then again, I don't know, like it's 75. I'm not from 1975. That's true. Neither am I. So yeah, Chrissy's our first person killed. And then the second thing, um, I kind of find this stupid. So this is after Chief Brody first hears about it. He's like, I want to close down the beaches. And the mayor, who we'll get into later, he's like, no, we're not going to close the beaches. So Brody's sitting on the beach with his wife. And there are a bunch of people in the water. And uh, this woman starts screaming. And he, Spielberg, like, zooms in on his face like, what's going on? And then it's the guy and he picks her up. Right. Just kind of being stupid. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, uh, it's actually, uh, I really like the composition of the shot because, uh, it really, um, it makes the audience f- decide who you want to focus on. Cause we know why we're here in the film. We know why we're watching the movie. So you have this conversation going on, but in the background, you, that's really focusing on what's going on in the water. So you can only make two choices. You can either focus on the conversation that's being told. And honestly, I've watched this movie 50 times. I don't even remember what the guy's saying (laughs) because I'm focusing on what's going on in the water. And the film does a fantastic job at that, kind of making the audience make decisions for themselves. And I agree. uh, They definitely didn't help Brody in that situation. No. Uh, We actually see this shot a couple times with um, Brody sitting on the beach and Spielberg just zooming in, kind of like going through Brody's mind and his decision-making at this point. So after this... We, um, so this is after, I believe, Alex dies, Mm. the little kid, um, Brody's at home with his family and his two sons are over by the dock and his son, Michael is sitting in a boat in the water and Brody's kind of like, Michael, get out of the water. And his wife's like, it's fine. He can, he's not like out at sea or anything. It's like, I don't want him in the water. Right. And then. He's reading this book about sharks and everything, and she sees on the cover, it's a shark, and it's kind of like breaking a hole in the boat. Right. And as soon as she sees that, she looks out at Michael, and she's like, Michael, you heard your father. Get back out of the water. It was, it, it was, it was really funny. It was like, um, uh, it, it, it added a little sense of humor, um, and I thought that was really w- uh, well-timed. Well and I think the film has a couple moments of that, of like sprinkling in humor when it really was needed, or even sometimes not needed, and it still was very effective. Mm-hmm. And I love the scene that follows that, the whole uh, peer incident scene, when those two guys are like, <laughs> speaking of idiots, they, they go up to the dock late at night, and they're like, you know, I, we gotta catch something, this is my wife's holiday roast. And so they toss this giant roast into the water with this uh, empty uh, wheel from a car that 
the kind of the uh, being used as the Bowie. Yeah. And it gets taken out to sea, and it ha- it's one of my favorite sequences in the film. So you you start in this scene, and then it cuts to Brody reading that same book, and he's flipping through different photos of sharks and, and their interactions with people, and the very last thing he sees is the aftermath of someone being bitten and like almost 90% of his thigh is gone and it's like it's graphic yeah and then we go back to the the pier and um i just the the cinematography the 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 music that plays the slow dum-dum um it's one of my favorite scenes because they use a visual imagery of the dock that breaks off it goes off to sea but then it turns back around following the guy in the water. And even just talking about it is giving me chills because I can visually see when the doc slowly turns yeah. back around and starts following the guy. And I just, every, if there was one scene I would break down from it other than the opening with Chrissy's death, that it would be this scene. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, to me, it's one of the most powerful sequences in the film. Yeah. Just mentioning that, uh, that was the next part that I had. Um, <laughs> the shark pulls down the dock. And, like, it's not even, like, he pulls off, like, a little bit. You, we haven't seen the shark up to this point. This shark has got to be, like, an absolute unit. Right. Because it's pulling down an entire dock at this point. It, I think it breaks off at least a third of the entire Yeah. Dock. And uh, Charlie, who's one of the guys, gets pulled into the water. And you just hear the guy being like, come on, Charlie, don't turn around, don't look back, just keep swimming towards me. And I was like, oh, Charlie's going to die right now. <laughs> And um, one of the last shots of the sequence, it kind of reflects the uh, the the composition from the beach with uh, the guy in the front, with the, in the back the 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 girl and I'm assuming her boyfriend or whatever. You have this dude trying to pull up his friend, who's Charlie, and in the back that that piece is just coming closer and closer and closer. Yeah. And it only is, and it's only when the dock finally actually arrives when you realize. The shark was probably trying to tear off the mm. the roast beef the entire time, but my goodness gracious! Every time I watch that that scene, I just I get chills. Right, I was totally expecting Charlie to like to lose die. a leg at that right. point. Like even when his friend is trying to pull him, I was like, Charlie's about to get his leg torn S- off. Something's gonna go wrong. Um, and I just love how at the end of it all, the music quiets off. The dock kind of hits the beach, and there's like three seconds of silence. Can we go home now? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like this, the idiots. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure which one of these comes next, but uh, the next thing I have is the dorsal fin scene where it's like, Chief Brody, I believe this is the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting on the beach again with his wife and they see a uh, they see a dorsal fin going around. So he's like, everybody yeah. out of the water. Right. And everybody's running out of the water. It's two kids. Right. And the one kid's like, he, he made, made me, me do it. it. And it's like, and you know what's really funny? When I was younger, um, the older kid I thought was Brody's kid. I also thought and that. And I was like, bro, like, not only are they idiots, like, they're such an idiot. Yeah, like, it's like, this is the chief of police's son. Right. I was like. It ends up not being. Right. It's not It's not the Brody's kid. But it was just like, when I was younger, I was like, wow, they, they look quite similar to each other. Um, but yeah, and I, and that kind of proves what we were talking about earlier, how the music, like the dorsal fin shows up, the audience should go, Oh, there's no music. This feels, this feels off, but everyone else around them is freaking out. So then should we be freaking out? And it isn't until of course, you know, they drop the dorsal fin. He he made me do it. 
And the best thing about that is the two kids pop up and they just look up and there's all these people with just guns shooting at right. them. <laughs> They're just like, uh. And um, we didn't really talk about the, uh, what you know, of course we talked about Brody calling everyone out of the water, but like the, the effect of these kids pulling that prank, the film didn't really mention if anyone got trampled or anything, but there was an older man who literally got trampled over as everyone was running off the, the beach there's a there's a shot where it's clear that he's like on the ground and there's somewhere i don't i i, I don't remember where the blood's coming from maybe his mouth but he's literally getting dragged off the beach because oh he's goodness. getting he hit he was getting ran over by just how many people were in the water right and uh now that you mentioned that uh i do remember there's one point where there are like two kids on like a life draft and like they're kind of just like trying to paddle away and the parents just kind of like pick them up and they're like no get right, off they're, of they're it they're like screw this like please. yeah because like if these kids don't get off right yeah you're getting like bodied at that point right i, I just feel like at that point in the film anything with a floaty is just no go yeah especially after alex we have one more person in this category and you yeah. just brought him up so at this point in the movie two maybe three people have died Quint has said, I'll kill your shark for you for like $10,000, but nobody wants to pay him. So this shark keeps killing people and everything. This is where Hooper comes in. We first meet uh, Hooper, who's played by Richard Dreyfuss, and apparently some people have caught the shark, and they have it hanging up at some point, and they're like, hey, we got the fish. And they're like, what type of shark is it? And he says, a tiger shark. And the... <laughs> Well, and what's really funny about it is that I think the film really uh, establishes how different Quint is from everyone because all of these guys get on their boats. They're dropping TNT into the water and all this crap. And these two dorky, overweight, like, fishermen are the ones that find the shark. Mm -hmm. Which, like you said, they say a tiger shark. They, they, like, walk over to it. They have no idea what they've caught. And, you know, what kind of shark is it? And then Matt just turns to them, a tiger shark. A what? And it's like one of the... I just loved it. It was just like, you're such an idiot, but you did it so well. Like, I love it. It's it's one of my favorite, like, what? In like a film that I can think of. Probably my favorite. Right. And uh, Matt's trying to like point it out to them. He's like, no, the bite radius is all different. He's like, what are you talking about bite radius? It's like, this is the shark. He's like, no, it's not. Right. And it was really well executed too when... Um, so... In the background, you have all these fishermen who are like, oh my gosh, we caught the shark, tiger shark, what? And then Matt's doing his, like, uh, ruling inspection and everything. Brody is ecstatic that they finally got this shark taken care of, but he pulls him to the side and he's like, dude, like, I, I know you're excited, but the bite radius on this shark doesn't match our victim. And the music changes, Brody changes, everything but the, but the background changes. And it really, like, establishes that we still got a problem. Yeah, and this is about, like halfway into the movie so if you're watching this on like a dvd or a video you're like oh so this isn't the shark right you gotta pause to use the bathroom oh they caught the shark pause oh well there's an hour and a half left so i guess they don't catch it yeah speaking of the shark let's talk about seeing the shark because we don't see it a lot until the end you are absolutely right so if i'm not mistaken this is a uh this is a mechanical shark right well it was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely it, the, supposed to be. It, it was the biggest conundrum on the on the set. It was a liability. It was a mess, and it was a giant mechanical shark. 
And ironically, it failing was the reason why this film is so successful. Yeah, because um, if you haven't seen this movie... Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. I should probably say that at the beginning of every movie I do. We're like 50 years yeah. behind, so I'm sorry for anyone that hasn't seen it. Sorry for all you uh, people who haven't seen it since 1975. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, spoilers. Um, Yeah, so this is a big-ass shark. And uh, yeah, it didn't work. So every time they wanted to shoot a scene with the shark, it decided to malfunction. Right. So Spielberg decided to say... We're going to show the shark as little as possible, and we're just going to build up suspense to this. Yeah, in fact, um, Spielberg said in a documentary that he kind of had to look at the film in a mirror for a minute, and he was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, how am I going to do this? And he kind of rewatched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's movies from the 1940s and the 1950s, specifically looking at Psycho, because Psycho was really one of the first movies that really established the concept of not showing right telling and um and i think the fact that he used that kind of as his launching pad and he says it himself that the combination of the shark not working and john williams eerie score just really wasn't at least 50 percent of the movie's success and looking at its uh successors with jaws even jaws 2 which in my opinion isn't as bad as some people like to say it is a part of the original film and what it was wasn't there because in the first scene we see the shark and just from that alone we we you know this film would have wouldn't have been as good as it was if that shark would have was working so give credit to bruce for failing yeah good job bruce yeah great job for doing exactly the opposite of what <laughs> we were meant to do right so um watching this movie we see the shark eight times in two hours and four minutes and the first time we see this is 17 minutes in, mm -hmm. and you see a glimpse of it when it's killing Alex. Right. I, I think, I, I, I never confirmed it uh, when I was watching it. I think we get to see its side fin and like the dorsal fin because it kind of came up right. him and then brought him down into the water. So it's kind of like we got like a, an arm and it's back for yeah. two seconds. But what's so great about the setup of it is that you can't even see anything it's so convoluted and crazy because you have the raft that's getting popped you have alex in the front with all the blood gushing out right so yeah we see this shark for the first time 17 minutes in and then we don't see it for maybe another 40 minutes when um it's the fourth of july and chief brody says to michael he's like hey why don't you take your friends and go like play in the pond and he's like that's where old ladies play and he's like we'll do it for the old man and he's like fine <laughs> uh so this is when the kids are kind of like playing around with the dorsal fin that they made and like the he made me do it there's a lady yes who weirdly kind of looks like chrissy from the beginning really i, I she to me she kind of it I, I i think out of all of the flaws in this film i think she's the only thing in this film that i'm like met about because it just she happened to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place or at the, the right wrong thing. place at the wrong right time exactly um so other than her screaming oh there's a shark in the pond um i've never paid attention to her right um and but that's really interesting i'm gonna have to go look back at at some stills and see if there's any re uh, resemblance is there any confirmation that it was the same actor i don't think so i didn't look that oh, deep okay. into it but the, when watching i was like 
huh, she kind of looks like Chrissy. Well, it's kind of the same thing while we were just talking about the, the kid with the, yeah. the fake fin. Like, a lot of, a lot of fake was... lookalikes in this right, movie. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, everyone looks like each other in this film. It's the 70s. Everyone looked the same. Everyone <laughs> had the same hairstyle. And the yad not too far from the car. Yeah. With all the uh, Long Island, Massachusettsers. Right. Uh, but they're from New York. Yeah definitely so yeah she's like there's a shark in the pond and after this moment we see the shark a bit more after this like not even a minute later uh the man on the boat yeah he's like hey kids what you doing he literally gets <laughs> oh my god that was like, this man gets destroyed that was like honestly like it didn't take away from it but like i think now that because we're not in the middle of the presence of the film but just looking at it from another perspective like this man had no reason to be there, like wrong, right place, wrong time, and he's just like, "Hey guys, you doing a right, right there?" And then my poor man, all he was trying to do was check in on these kids, and he just gets knocked off the boat, and just one shot killed by this massive monster. Yeah. And I do have to say, it's the first time we get to see the face, but it's very like dissolved and by the water. It was such an effective shot because you get to see for the first time just how monstrous it mm -hmm. actually is as he gets pulled under. Yeah, maybe Bruce decided to work that day. Maybe. I definitely know that they still got to use it, just not in the way that they wanted to. Yeah, so after this man on the boat dies, uh, 19 minutes later, we get probably the most famous part of this movie. Brody chucking the chum into the water and he's like, why don't you come check some of this shit? He pops up to say hello for the first time. You get your first big glimpse of the shark, and that's where the famous line comes in. You're going to need a bigger boat, which apparently was not in the script. No, it wasn't. It, uh, uh, Spielberg talks about that all the time, actually, that it was... Uh, I don't... I know that there was a line that was supposed to be said, and I don't remember what it was, but somewhere Roy Scheider basically was like, I don't feel like this fits the situation or my character. And so when when Spielberg said action and he did the thing, he just went with it. And I think it fit quite perfectly yeah. with the situation. Because in my opinion, they definitely could have used a bigger boat. Definitely, yeah. The orca is not that big of a boat. No. In fact, I think the shark is nearly as long as it. I think so. Because I think it would, uh, uh, um, Robert Shaw, uh, Quint, it, he, he said that the shark was at least 25 feet long. And yeah. When the shark was shown going by it, it was at least three quarters of the boat. Yeah, so, and uh, Quint even says, like, so he's shooting the harpoons at some point. He gets three barrels stuck, and it's like, oh, he's not going to be able to go under the boat at this point. He goes under the boat. Right, and I think what what's great about each time is um, he goes from one barrel, pulls it down. All right, you know, I get it. He's a big fish. Shoots a second one. Oh, he can't do it. He does it again. Oh, okay. He shoots a third one. Now, at that point, I'm not a fishing guy. I don't know what these barrels do other than, like, I get it. Like, they're filled with air, so they're supposed to pull them back up and tire them out. But even then, with three of them, for him to pull all three down, oh, my goodness. Yeah, they probably should have known that after, uh, you know, seeing the dock that right. got destroyed. Well, I don't think I don't think they saw the dock get destroyed oh but they had to because the two guys talked to them that's right yeah brody oh, definitely yes, should have known that's absolutely right but he, then again he was like i think he got petrified the moment that shark showed up because like he like literally 
flipped onto the, onto the shot when he saw the shark pop up and his whole, you're going to need a bigger boat. Like he was not comfortable at yeah, all no. where he was. And what I also thought was really interesting about just the uh, shooting of those scenes, they actually shot it pretty close to, to land. Really? They did. And, um, you know, I, I don't remember if it was a budget thing or if it was because of the weather or anything. Um, but for whatever reason, they didn't feel comfortable shooting everything far off land. And so basically all Spielberg did was ensure that every single shot up until the end had no land. What? And the reason why was because what Spielberg didn't want was for his audience to watch everything, see a piece of land, and then have someone in the audience go, well, there's land right there. Just go back and get better stuff. All that kind of thing. He really wanted to emphasize that these guys were out on the ocean alone. Mm. And, I mean, he did a superb job. Like, yeah, it um, worked like, out like perfectly. They, they really looked like they were alone and stranded with this giant shark around them. Yeah, um, I don't really like the water that much. This is not helping that case. No, I... <laughs> I There's this... I don't know the, 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 the phobia name, but there's a phobia for, like, deep water. Mm. Like, open deep water. Right. And I have that. Oh, so that's I fair. I don't know how I love this movie so much. But maybe, you know what it is? I feel comfortable on giant boats. Like, I went on a cruise with my family a couple years ago, and I felt comfortable on there. But it, you know, it was like a small town on yeah. that cruise. If I was on, like, the Orca, yeah, no. I don't think I could handle that. Because the concept of dunking my head underwater oh, and no. seeing something there that I can't see, uh, just no thank you. Yeah, no, that's uh, not, not, yeah. not ideal. It's just not for me. <laughs> So yeah, we get a, you're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, about 16 minutes later, he pops up to say hello again when they're tying the ropes. Yep. About six minutes after that, he's trying to bite the barrel lines off right. so he can just swim freely. I don't know a lot about like animal, like fish and, and, and sharks. Sharks, and, and the film does a really good job. Like this shark is a killing machine and that's yeah. what it's designed to do. And I think even in the ocean, the shark is literally designed to maintain balance in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So for this shark to be to nomming the the ropes, like is he is this a smart shark? And I know that later on in the in the series, they started establishing the concept that there was like an intelligent shark. Yeah, apparently, um, sharks can hold the grudges. Right, and then uh, later on, uh, <laughs> oh god, this is why Bruce won the uh, worst <laughs> lifetime achievement award at the Razzies. I just. Just thinking of Jaws the Revenge just makes me laugh. Like, <laughs> Yeah, good job, Michael Caine, for uh, not accepting your Oscar to film to this film movie. Jaws 4. Um, I, I know we're not talking about this film, but since we're since we're, we're mentioning it, one of my favorite like continuity errors in it is there's a sequence where I think his plane crashes into the water. Something happens where Michael Caine falls in water. And the very next shot, he's climbing back onto the boat, and his shirt is dry. Like, everything <laughs> on him is dry. And I'm like, dude, you just climbed out of water. How are you so dry? Like, that film was just so bad. And what I loved about it is that they hinted that, like, Miss Brody and the shark had a psychic connection. Yeah. And I was just like, like, it, it, it's just so funny. Yeah. And I all that to say that I thought it was interesting that in Jaws, that this shark had some sense of, I'm trapped, I need to get out. And that was really interesting. Yeah. Let's not talk about Jaws or Revenge. Yeah, Let's I talk about a better Jaws movie. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we get two more times out of this. And it, 
actually him popping up to say hello at some points i think that makes sense biologically because i think sharks actually have to come up to get air at points because i think that's an issue with sharks i think dolphins have like teamed up on sharks to uh like drown it yeah it's actually it, it it's so ironic to me because the concept that a fish or a shark can drown like they're in water so it's like how does one drown if you live in the water right you know but i know that when dolphins i think they're called a pod when it's like a bunch of them and they'll target its belly and for whatever reason if they hit it enough the dude just dies yeah and i don't and i don't know if it's if they need air but i know that when like they're when they're hunting um they love attacking from the from underneath Mm -hmm. and they get air as they come back down and frankly if you ever have an opportunity uh for viewers or yourself nick you should watch a documentary about air jaws because it is some of the most beautiful sequences that you'll ever see about this like 15 foot shark uh, flying out of the water to get its food and then literally like almost posing because it's like flattening and then coming back down it's doing a uh it's doing a free willy for you exactly it it, it, but you know it's it's really pretty and it it really shows nature like man my god made good nature nature's so cool except for jaws yeah (laughs) except for this one shark yeah uh that actually brings up a good point of you saying it likes to attack from behind because every time we see this shark attack except for one moment i'll bring up later um it's always from a underneath point of view shot we always see someone's feet kicking or something and then they're gone and then they're gone right um and what's interesting is that uh in australia there's like this on the eastern side where most shark attacks happen um they there's the biologists or not biologists who are people that study ocean life marine, marine biologists, biologists. yeah I forgot a, i'm I forgot so sorry a, for any marine biologist speaking it's not my field i apologize I yeah, know no. I, you, you are equally worthy to regular biologists. Yeah, sorry. We're both artists. We don't uh, do biology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they say that the reason why sharks attack surfers is because when they're belly on the pad and they're paddling, the sharks aren't very smart, and so they assume they're seals. Oh. And so when they attack and bite, 98% of the time they'll immediately go away because they bit into something that's not seal but they did say that sometimes you'll find a shark that does like its taste and then it will come back but Uh, nine out of ten times the shark will go away because it's like oh this is this is not my usual meal that makes sense yeah so i thought i don't know if that was on purpose but they really hit biologically on what sharks do especially with the attack on alex because alex to a shark could look like a seal struggling so, yeah, it always attacks from underneath, but the one moment we don't is when Hooper goes into the water in the cage, Ugh, and yeah. he's looking for the shark so he can stab it with this poison spear that he made, and he's looking around, he's looking around, it comes from behind. So right. this is a smart shark. It's basically performing a sneak attack. Right. It, it, it makes him drop his spear, right. and then it literally starts tearing this cage apart. Right. And it's so fascinating because I don't remember... I don't remember the reason why behind it, but basically that was also not meant to happen. Oh, really? And what happened was, so there are, because we are now 2021, I think it's a lot easier to see 
real things and fake things from movies back then. Um, not as much. I think a lot of movies still hold up very, very well, especially from the 70s and the 80s, especially when they use miniature sets. Um, but there's a, but when, um, there are definitely shots where you know it's the mechanical shark and when they're shooting a real shark. Oh, that's right. And the, the, there are multiple long shots of seeing the shark caught on the top and rolling around. And what happened was a shark got wedged on the top and was trying to struggle to free itself. And the guy inside the tank, inside the cage, basically panicked and fled down underneath the water and they just kept rolling watching the shark literally tear apart the top of the of the cage and finally break itself free and based off of that spielberg basically adjusted that sequence to have the shark just attacking it and not getting caught and i don't i'm i'm sure that in the book and in the original script he was supposed to do something but to that extent it was not originally intended to be that way i'm glad you know so much about this movie I'm learning a lot about this. I learn. I know a little too much. <laughs> it's perfectly okay. Um, and the final time that we see this shark before it eventually dies, like I said, spoilers. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, it kills Quint. Yes. And we finally see like a, not really full body. We see half its body come out. Right. And we were just talking about this. Like for the longest time, Quint is talking about his time on the USS uh, Indianapolis, and he's talking about how he saw a man, and he got bit by a shark. Like, where exactly? Somewhere around, like, the middle I abdomen? Don't, I don't remember if he said that he saw it get bitten. What I remember is that he specifically says that he saw someone he knew, but then, like, when he tried to, in, like, uh, interact with them, he realized they were bitten in half. So I think he was already dead. Right, and we see this with Quint, because for the longest time, I thought Bruce, who's the shark, uh, bites Quint and basically bites down, and I guess he just dies from blood loss. Right. No. Uh, after watching this scene again, you can definitely hear some sort of snap or crunch. Right, there's definitely a graphic, like, it, 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 the best way to describe it is, like, take a bag of chips hold it up to your mic and then just crimple it like that's yeah. almost exactly how it sounds and quint spits up blood and he does get dragged underneath the water but i'm also pretty sure he got split yeah definitely and that ends our section on seeing the shark but it perfectly segues into our next section of seeing the victims of this shark yes so this shark kills six people i think only six? I thought it was eight. Maybe I have to do a recount. You know where you can watch it. I'm going to shamefully plug something. You can go and watch The Dead Meat Kill Count on Jaws. Hosted by James A. Janice. Yeah, I hope I could get him on this show sometime. You It'd know, be wonderful. I, I love his show. And uh, I, I actually have watched an unhealthy amount of his videos. Oh, so have I. And uh, I love how whenever he's talking about the shark, when the shark's coming up, and it comes out for a shark attack. <laughs> and it's like, I just, I, I love the energy he brings to his podcast. And hey, um, uh, I'll send you those hopes too. It would be awesome to hear his voice on this podcast. James A. Janice, if you're listening, please come on my podcast. We're both subscribed. I'm assuming you're subscribed. I'm oh, subscribed. absolutely. There you go. His, uh, his show, What's Your Favorite Scary Movie, actually inspired this podcast. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, uh, we see a couple shark attacks right. at this point. Um, 
The first is Chrissy. Yeah. We don't see Chrissy actually die. No, but At we can assume. Eight minutes and 33 seconds in, we see Chrissy's arm. Yes. And it's gross. It's like discolored and it's covered by seaweed and crabs i was about to make sure that you added the crabs because there was a lot of crabs yeah there were it's kind of creepy how many crabs there are <laughs> you know what it kind of looked like kind of looked like that video like crab dance <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i love um later on when uh they're examining her arm um well matt hooper's examining her arm first they don't even reveal her full arm to the to the audience. They we see Matt Hooper's reaction, and his reaction it's all he it looks like he's about to throw up. Yeah, he feels uncomfortable, and his whole body language changes. He has to breathe differently. I think he um he doesn't he does drink something. He he asked for a glass of water. He did. That's right. And then he pulls out the arm, and you kind of see the gore on the bottom half where yeah. her elbow's supposed to be, and it's like. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, because um, this is his first, like, one of his first interactions with, like, Chief Brody and everything. And he's like, I have to see, like, the attacks that were on the first victim. And he's like, let me see the body. The mortician that is there kind of just pulls this thing out. It's not full body length. No, I'm pretty sure it's just a tray. Yeah, it's like, kind of it's kind of like one of, it's kind of like pretty, like, a little bit longer than, like, a filing cabinet. On it, like, I, um... You remember the lunch trays we got? Because we went to the same high school together. Do you yeah. Remember the lunch tray. Oh my goodness, excuse me. Do you remember the lunch trays that we used to get at Baldwin? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's like about the length of what that tray was. Yeah. It was probably like that length. And like, you know, the lockers in the band room? Yes. It was probably like that height. Right. Like, and that's the best. That that was really. It's not funny, of course. But yeah, he, no. He's like, bring out the remains, and all she brings. I don't even remember she bringing it out on a cart. She, I'm pretty sure she just carries yeah. it in. You're probably looking at like a a foot by like a foot and a half, if that. Right, like it's it's not anything at all. No, it's not. So then, about eight minutes after that, we see a guy at the beach with his dog Pippet. And he oh. throws he throws a stick and he, yeah. then uh we see Chief Brody's younger son, not Michael, and he's singing uh Do you know the Muffin Man? Yeah, do you know the Muffin Man? And this guy's like, Pippet, Pippet, where are you? And all you this is a recurring thing with Spielberg in this movie. You don't ever see like the person die. You only see like something that symbolizes them. Like yeah. with Pippet, you see only the stick. Right. And late not even later on, two minutes later. With Alex being killed, you don't see Alex die. Right. All you see is the raft, like, torn to pieces. Right. He definitely, um, he definitely uses imagery very effectively. Um, and I think another movie that he uses it very well in is in Jurassic Park, especially when the T-Rex is around. Mm. And kind of just like with Jaws, whenever you see that, that sequence with the cup and you see the water have that rattle... And the water moves gently. Right. Um, you know it's that the T Rex is coming, and just like with this, um, yeah, like I, I, I can watch that scene over and over again. Every time the raft shows up, it just breaks your heart. Yeah. Because, I, I think as a person, you always want to assume and hope that the person got away, but then once you see that raft, you know it's over. Yeah, this is definitely probably more heavy if you're a parent of any sort. Right, and uh, the sequence with. Uh, the mom with Brody after she finds out that another person had gotten killed she kind of 
I don't know if she's supposed to represent the audience, but she kind of hits them with the truth of like, bro, you knew this you was going on. You knew this was happening, and yet you're, uh, to her perspective, you're not doing anything. And like just watching her as a parent, it's it's it's, it's heartbreaking. Right. And, and I think the movie does a great job with that. We'll definitely get into that a little bit later. Another thing, like you see, like uh, the man on the boat, mm-hmm. who unfortunately was killed because he was just trying to be a good person. Right. Uh, you see him get pulled under, and then all you see is his leg. Right. And then, like you said in Jurassic Park, he uses imagery really well by, like, not really showing the victims. You only see it... There's a there's a comparison I'm making here. Like, in Jurassic Park, it's when Laura Dern is going to turn back the... Uh, it's trying to turn the power back on. Right. And it's after the raptor attack, and the guy kind of just, like, falls into the cage and everything. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Jesus Christ. Or was it Samuel Jackson? It's one of those well, two. Yeah, well, she, she like backs up onto something and then I think it was Sam Jackson. It was like his arm. Yeah, oh, that's it, yeah. And she's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And she turns around and there's nothing yeah, there. Yeah, there's just an and arm there. We see the almost almost ironically like the same location where the, the arm was uh, gored up in oh. Jaws. It almost was in the same exact spot. Right. And I thought that was really funny. Which makes me wonder, who put the arm there? Yeah, do you think it's kind of just like <laughs> someone's job to like just stand in the dark and just be like... Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, Is the Velociraptor playing a game with her? Or, did he, <laughs> or was he like in the middle of eating the guy? Yeah. Like, the, it, it makes me think about that. And uh, and uh, But yeah, so I'm assuming you're comparing that with like the leg that falls down after the attack. I'm actually not. I'm comparing that to Ben Gardner. Who, oh, there um, it is. So it's when Hooper and Brody go out on their own without Quint at first. Right. And this is at night. So Hooper's like, I got to go check for something. So he goes underwater in all his scuba gear. He sees his shark tooth, so he pulls it out. Right. But then, this is probably the biggest jump scare of the movie besides actually seeing the shark. All you see is Ben Gardner's head. That that scared the living hell out of yeah, me when I was a kid. There's no body attached to it. It's missing an eye. Right. It's. It this is this me, is gross to look at. It took me a f- honestly a couple years to be able to watch that entire sequence, um, because first and foremost, I wasn't like I don't think anyone's expecting that. Yeah. No. Um, and then for not only for us to see Matt's reaction, we then get to see another shot of like, full on. His skin is decaying, one eye's missing. I think something's coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Like, it's nasty. Yeah, it's gross. And I'm glad you brought that up because that I was hoping we were going to talk about that scene. That's another scene that was really well done because there's music involved. There's music involved. Um, it actually brings forth a lot of stuff. Like uh, Hooper has the tooth at first, right. and then he sees Ben's head, and then he, he drops the tooth, right. which leads to... We'll just move into our next segment because the only other person who dies in this movie is Quint. And yes. we discussed that already. Yep. He unfortunately does die. And uh, I do have to say, I, I think um, the film does a fantastic job with its foreshadowing. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this scene that we're talking about right now where Hooper sees Ben Gardner's head, he has a tooth in his hand. It's proof that the shark is real. This leads into some political corruption because Brody and Hooper are both like, we need to close the beaches down now. And he's like, I have... He's like, I saw a tooth gnashed into uh, Ben Gardner's thing. And he's like, well, where's the tooth? This is the mayor speaking. And he's like, I don't have it. He's like, I dropped it. I had an accident. And he was like, well, there's no tooth, so 
We're going to continue on. The, this dialogue wasn't in the film, but I actually, um, after I watched this movie when I was in sixth grade, I made a Lego version of this film, and I was inspired by another YouTuber who made this film, and he added an ad-lib line. <laughs> so um, the, the mayor asked him, where's the tooth? And Brody's like trying to give him, like, oh, why does it matter? And um, Hooper, I had an accident. And you just hear him go, did you piss your pants? <laughs> and I don't know why. I just Every time I hear in the film, I had an accident, that did you piss your pants always comes into <laughs> mind. And I just, it, it, it cracks me up. I'm glad it's not in the actual film. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the mayor does a phenomenal job at making you hate him. Yeah, besides the shark in this movie, who's the true villain of this, the mayor is a huge piece of shit. Yeah, and he he makes it pretty well known that he's not worried about even like lives or anything. He's worried about the financial aspect of everything. And I guess for someone in his position, I can understand that. But like for the fact for him to not even consider human lives, it kind of really mm -hmm. shows like what his values are. Right. So um, we've discussed this before. What does the mayor say that uh, Amity Island is? Uh, that it's a summer town. It's a summer and town. they need summer dollars. Exactly. So nothing, not even a shark attack, is going to end this town's uh, financial gain during the summer. Uh, we learn that during this movie, it's right before, during, and after the 4th of July. And after Chrissy's death, so this is very early in the movie, uh, we see brody typing up a statement about the death and he writes shark attack oh for chrissy's death yes yeah. yes you're right in fact like yeah you know the film's on the nose for brody like he has assumptions from the get-go yeah like he's on the oh this was a shark boat no pun intended from the beginning and it's I, up until that point the only real voice who is going oh i don't think this is a shark is the mayor yeah like uh we see it in the beginning um when Brody gets where, like, there are Boy Scouts, like, doing, like, a swimming thing for a merit badge. Uh, he's like, I gotta go down there. He's like, I gotta get them out of the water and everything. The mayor shows up, and he's with, uh, I think another, like, town official, and he's with a doctor. Right. And he's like, this wasn't a shark attack. This is a boating accident. It was and a the, boating accident. Yeah, and the doctor even says it's a boating accident. And Brody even says, you didn't tell me that on the phone. He's like, I changed my mind. Like, right. you can't just change your mind on these things. Well, he can't. He's the mayor. And he's a doctor, I guess. I guess he's also a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, then uh, the mayor wants to keep the beaches open for the 4th of July. And he's like, we're, we're a summer town. We need summer dollars. And he's like, people would be happy to go swimming at the beaches at Cape Cod, the Hamptons, Long Island, which I think is a bit of a continuity error since they're already on Long Island. Well, unless, because they're on Amityville. No, it's not Amityville. It's Amity Island. Sorry, sorry, Amity Island. I don't know if that's like a. Is is it a continuity error? Because isn't Long Beach a thing? Long Beach is a thing. Yeah, so maybe he was talking about like that. Maybe Jones Beach. I I don't remember film wise where Amityville Island was supposed to be located. Right. Like I'm not sure if it's supposed to be like kind of like a Fire Island type thing. Because at one point they do say the mainland. Right. Which I'm not sure if, like, maybe this isn't a legit island, like, off of Long Island. Right. But, like, yeah, they say the Hamptons and Long Island, which are both Long Island. Well, maybe the mayor's just being a dick and trying <laughs> to find any way possible to make Brody, you know, consider not being smart. 
Yeah. Uh, he tries to do that a lot. Um, after Alex's death, they kind of have like a town hall meeting. Right. And there's a woman. She's like, are you going to close the beaches? And Brody says, yeah. And then the mayor says, only for 24 hours. Right. He's like finding every way possible to have everything open. And the be- I love that scene, too, because, you know, he so Brody reveals, yeah, we're going to be closing. Everyone freaks out. And um, you just hear in the back, only 24 hours. And then Brody's like, what? I didn't agree to this. Yeah, he's not. He's not. A, he's not a cool guy. And this comes when you have the chief of police, Brody, and you have an expert oceanographer, uh, Hooper. And they're like, the only way to prove this is if we cut open that shark that's hung up after the two men, you know, a what? Shark guy. Um, Best character. <laughs> yeah, underrated <laughs> character. Um, they say, hey, we got to cut open this thing so we can see what it's eaten in the last 24 hours. He's like, I'm not going to let you cut open this thing on the pier. It's like, I don't want to see a dead boy there. It's like, well, how do you know there's going to be a dead boy there? Right. He won't let the beaches be closed because Brody and Hooper don't have the tooth. Um, during the 4th of July, he's like, nobody's sitting in the, nobody's going in the water. And he's like, why don't you go in the water? He's like, well, I just put on like suntan lotion and like, I got to let it dry. And he's like, go in the water. And he makes his whole family go in. Right. He, he literally, uh, puts the, a family's life in jeopardy because he is concerned about his financial gain. And it's really funny that you bring this up. It's only after this scene that there is some sort of maybe Brody is right. And I think that's because for all that the mayor is, he truly had a good relationship with Chief Brody. And to see Chief Brody's son be affected the way he was after that shark attack on the 4th, he changed. Whether it was for forever or if it was just in that moment where he was like, oh my gosh, Chief Brody's son. Because even in that sequence in the hospital, he's like, he's trying to find a way to rationalize what he was doing. And he couldn't. Right, like, uh, he's like, this is in the hospital, and he's like, I'm truly sorry for your thing, and he pulls him aside, he's like, you got a pen on you? He's like, uh, no, and he's like, no, you have a pen. So he reaches into his coat pocket and takes out a pen, yeah. and he's like, hire Quint right now. And he's trying to find, like, all these ways to, like, not hire Quint, because he doesn't want to pay $10,000 and everything. Right. Which is kind of understandable, but... I mean, he didn't have to at the end of it. I mean, I'm just saying, sorry, spoilers, but, you know. Yeah, but still, six people have died up to this point. Right. And he's like, my kids were on that beach. And he's like, yeah, this is probably why you should uh, kill the shark. And then that's what I was saying is that, like, I think that's where, like, so you, good thing you say that. So Brody goes into that whole thing about, you know, you know, you got to sign this. And he, the mayor's, like, struggling to find words. And Brody's still ranting about everything. And it cuts to the mayor cutting him off going, Brody, my kids were there as well. And I think for the first time in the film, we get to see the human side of the mayor because it's immediately after he says that, that he signs the paper. And so I think for the first time, he has the opportunity to look at it from his family. And it's kind of funny because he truly resembles corrupt politicians because they only care about themselves. They don't care about what, you know, goes on around them until the thing that's going on around them affects their family. The last section I have on Jaws is... The reference to the end. There are a couple of references to the end of this movie. And this is a major spoiler. Yeah, sorry guys. This is how the movie ends. So So if you haven't watched it, like pause right here, go watch the film, and then come back. Yeah. 
So we see it a couple times. The ending of this movie is Chief Brody shoots the shark in an oxygen tank, and this shark blows the fuck up. Right. It's like the most out of all of the film. It's the most actiony that we get. Like it. It it makes Michael Bay look like he was thirty years behind. You know, like it was the first really big explosion. Right. Like this whole movie's kind of calm for the most part, and then this part happens. You're like, what just happened? Right. And it was like it was so epic. Like the the music was building up. Brody's missing every shot that he's taking, and the shark's like gnawing on this thing. And the last line of Brody's interaction with the shark is, "Smile, you son of a boom." Yeah. I think that's a misinterpreted quote. I think most people think he says, like, bitch at the end. He, he doesn't. doesn't. He says, smile, you son of a... Right. And it, it, it was really well done. And, I mean, of course, I know film-wise, you know, it, it's perfectly timed. But I think it would have been so funny if he says, smile, you son of a... Shoots and then misses. Oh. Like, like what would you have fallen up, followed up with that? You know what I mean? Like, just story-wise, that would have been really funny. But, you know, it was a such a great sequence and uh if you are invested into the film like if you're able to maintain in uh, your invest uh, your investment into it sometimes you'll find yourself going yeah <laughs> like it's 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 really well made also fun fact this is the last time i promise the last time that i will talk about the bad movie the the shot of the the half shark falling down it's the same shot in the fourth movie and i just thought that was really funny that they didn't even shoot a new thing it was just the same sequence and i just you know oh, it was just really funny to me but yeah i just the, the music the cinematography and then finally i wonder how satisfying it was for the crew to blow up their mechanical shark that was giving them so many problems yeah that's probably like a bittersweet moment they're like thank god this thing is destroyed but <laughs> they're like finally done spent a lot of time making that Right. I mean, at some point, you got to love it, right? Yeah. You're like, you were really useless and didn't work when we wanted you to, but we had you for a bit. <laughs> it, it was fun. So, yeah, let's get to the references to this movie. So, you first see it 25 minutes in. Brody is researching sharks, and he's flipping through the pages of a book, and he sees a shark with a tank in its mouth. It's like, hmm, that won't do anything for us right now. About... A little less than an hour in, or an hour later, uh, Chief Brody knocks over the gas tanks, and Hooper's like, if you mess with these, they'll blow up. It's like, hmm, maybe if I remembered that tank from before, right. something <laughs> will happen. It, it's, um, it, yeah, it, it's sprinkled in, and what's really nice is that they only talk about it one time, and that's, like, of course, the tank is used later on, and funny enough, you could probably argue that the initial thought of that foreshadowing is when Hooper uses it to get into that cage. Yeah. But in reality, you know, it's what, it's how Brody uses it for when he shoots the shark. And the fact that they only mentioned it one time and it was so quick, it was like, it was the, the, the dialogue sequence on the boat was so real and natural that you sometimes forget that it actually happens five minutes later because of what's, of what's going on on the ship. Like you said, uh, Quint goes and grabs Hooper a oxygen tank so he can go under into the shark cage. And then, like, seven minutes after that is when Brody... First, he doesn't just, like, throw it into his mouth. First, he starts, like, beating its nose with it, which I've heard is, like, the way to fight a shark. Like, you're supposed to, like, cut off, like, its way to breathe. 
I don't know, like, about that part, but I do know that, like, if you're being bit, you either, you pull the gills and you punch it in the face. Like, that's what I know, and that's, I don't have any experience being attacked by sharks, Yeah. but... Um, Hope I never do. Yes, no, seriously, I'm never going swimming in open water, ever. Also, don't beat up sharks. Yeah, please don't start a fight with a shark. Um, but yeah, so, uh... I, I don't know if that's what they were going for, but it definitely is true that if you if you punch the snout, if you pull the gills, like that's the way you try and free yourself. Because mm. you know, if you are a shark and all you've known throughout your entire life is that if you bite something, it's over. The thing you start biting starts beating the crap out of you. Like, You're like, oh, I'd be like, what is this? Like, I'm not here for this kind of crap. Yeah, it's kind of just like, oh, nothing can beat me, and then it starts punching you. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> Right. I had my one thing, and now you're ruining it. Right, like, I'm only here to do one thing, and that's kill, and you're taking it away from me. I'll go find something else. Yeah. So, any last comments on Jaws, the movie? Any other comments would be, you know, I think its impact can still be affected today, um, and I think for our generation that it's not a film that people will jump up to go see, but if you are a filmmaker, if you're a film lover... This is a movie for you. Like, it is a beautiful movie. Um, it may not be as scary as it used to be, but just as a film, it is one of the best put-together films that you'll ever see. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And that actually brings up a good point. Um, I remember watching a Dead Meat video where they were ranking the uh, Bravo in 2004. They did, like, their either 100 or 50 scariest moments in, like, film history. The opening scene with Chrissy was named the number one scariest scene of that time. Right. Probably due to the fact that the people making it were children when they saw it, or teenagers. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely a really cool thing. And um, I started this last week, but um, if you could recommend this to like certain type of person or something, what type of people do you think would want to watch Jaws? Who would want to watch Jaws? That's a great question. Um, and that's not something I think about a lot. That's a really good question. So uh, you're doing a great job as a, as a podcaster. Thank you. You ask really good questions. Uh, and you do your research, and that's really awesome. I don't get to talk about this movie to a lot of people. So it's, it's really cool. Um, I would say that, first and foremost, I think you need to be a little open-minded. Because, like I said before, it's not as scary as it used to be. Um, I still think the Ben Gardner scene and the Chrissy scene still impact the same way it does as it did back then. Um, but I do think there's a bit of a temptation to look at this film and go, oh, this was a film in the 70s. You know, it's, it doesn't have the same glimmer as it did. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's why there are a lot of movies that I haven't seen in the 70s because it's kind of like, you know, the whole, eh, you know, there are a lot of movies I, that I want to see uh, other than this. But if you love film... If you're someone that wants to watch a movie because of the impact that it had on this on the industry, which it genuinely did, uh, this is a movie for someone like that. It's definitely a movie that you need to pay attention to every detail, and it's not for a casual view. Unless you want to get drunk, maybe. <laughs> All right. That was a great way to close out talking about Jaws, but we're not done. Oh, we're not? No, we're not. Okay. We're gonna have we're gonna talk about some other stuff. Okay. Uh, you're a filmmaker, correct? I am. Why don't you talk about that? What sure. inspired you, besides this movie, mm-hmm. to uh, get into filmmaking? That's a heavy-loaded question. Um, okay. So... Uh, 
in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't going <laughs> to give you my whole life story. Um, <laughs> it all started. It all started when I was seven. So, um, yeah, I just, ever since I was younger, I just, I've always been a creative individual. I love telling stories. I've recently gotten into Dungeons and Dragons uh, as a dungeon master Ooh. because I just love creating stories. And when I was younger, I had this like really tiny uh, auto zoom camera. It was like a really, it was literally like this big. Um, and I would just reenact scenes from films that I liked with my dinosaurs, with my action figures, even Pokemon cards. Like I would, I would make up stories and just, and record them. And uh, I had a film class and where it was video production in 11th grade with Vincent, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I lost this man. Vincent Lease, uh, Mr. Lease. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Lease. And, um, I actually had the opportunity to have a couple of shorts made with one of my closest friends, Frank, who is also in film. I know he's been on the show before. He was our first guest. He was, and he, uh, I think you guys talked about The Dark Knight, right? Yes, we did. It was a wonderful episode. You should go check it out. Um, but we had the opportunity to work together on a couple projects, and it was the first time we had touched cameras. Well, not touched cameras, but it was the first time that we were doing something together. It was the first time that we were getting a team together, putting it together, and sending it somewhere. And the first time that we did it, we got sent to a film festival, and out of over a 1,000 entries, we got fourth place. Wow. And initially, it was extremely disappointing not to win. I'm very competitive. Like, you know me. I love sports. I've always been involved in sports. Um, if I don't win, I lose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's no second place to me. But the fact that we got so close the first time. Yeah. It was really inspiring. And Lise pulled us aside and said, if you guys want to pursue this, I can see this being your career. Frank has taken off. He has a wonderful career. My path has been a little slower. Um, but it's it's been a, it's been a blessing. Um, I, I, a lot of my stories and my writing is based off of my faith. Uh, I, I am a Christian. Uh, and so just having the opportunity to tell stories through my lens is wonderful. And film has just always been impactful in my life. And I look forward to the opportunity to telling stories from my vision. Yeah, no, that's a great, um, you said it started off a bit slow, but like, it's okay. Not everybody like starts like shot out of the gate. Right. And like, I've definitely seen, I've seen you before in movies. Like you were in a film that Frank made, uh, Glass Room. I was. I, I actually wasn't supposed to be. Really? Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I signed up to be a PA because I was looking for experience. And basically, um, an actor last second couldn't make it. And they were looking for another actor. And I pulled Frank aside, who was directing the film. And I told him, hey, if you need someone to jump in, I'll do it for you, just as a favor. And I loved it. Um, Frank said that uh, when it came to the performance and everything, that it was exactly what he was looking for. So it was an absolute honor to bring a character that he had put together onto the screen. And from what I'm told, I didn't do too terrible. No, I I liked it. I enjoyed your <laughs> performance. I thought you did stand up job. Stand up job. <laughs> Listen, for you just jumping in there, that's definitely a great job. Thank you. Yeah, it it was it. It reminded me of a thing I did when I was in high school. It's called 24-Hour Theater. And basically, writers would get together. People that wanted to act would get into the into this area. And writers would have 24 hours to... Sorry, they would have overnight to write up a short script. We would then have to perform, practice it for about five hours. And then we would perform it live. Oh, my goodness. So 
I think that experience kind of helped. I just told Frank give me the script. He he gave me the idea of who the character was. I came up with what he is, who he was, and it was really fun to go off of. And uh, the actors who were a part of the film did a phenomenal job. Uh, the my uh, my co actor who uh, was the star of the film, he was the other cop. Um, he was he was phenomenal. In fact, I made a short film for uh, Brooklyn College named Kindred. Um, that's still uh, being worked on right now, um, and he was he portrayed life, and he's just a he's a blast to work with, and I hope to work with him again. Okay, look out for Kindred coming soon ish. I have no idea. Coming I, at some point. At some point, there will be a short film named Kindred that will be released to the public. There you go. Uh, just one other thing. Mm-hmm. Let's uh stray away from film for a bit. I know this is a film podcast, but I also like to talk to th- people about other things. Hey, you like football? I absolutely do. The draft is next week. Wow. Is it? I hope it is. I, I've been keeping up with it almost religiously. <laughs> <laughs> you like football. You're from Idaho, correct? I was born in Idaho. But then my family moved for about four to five years to Arizona, and that's where I fell in love with football with the Arizona Cardinals. And we moved out here when I was about eight or nine years old, and I, they haven't left my heart. Okay, yeah. I was about to ask you, where does a kid from Idaho get a love of the Arizona Cardinals? But that backstory makes a lot more sense yes it, it wasn't like i just went from idaho to new york and somehow said i like birds um, <laughs> it was more of i i was a little kid my my grandfather and my stepfather took me to the cardinals uh home opening it was it was some game uh we, they were playing the eagles josh mccown was the quarterback uh i don't think larry was drafted yet wow it was literally like 2003 2004 they were playing at sun devil stadium Donovan McNabb was the Eagles quarterback, and we got trashed. This has been a while. It has been a very long time. I've been a Cardinals fan since 2003, so now it's 18 years. I've been an 18-year-long Cardinal fan. I've been through the ups and a lot of downs. Hey, they're on a bit of a they're been on a bit of a resurgence right now. They're coming up. They I, they just missed out they this year. They just missed out, and uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I want to draft Najee Harris. Uh, from the running back from Alabama. I think he is the final piece of the offensive puzzle. Um, We'll see what happens. Uh, I love Kyla Murray, and when I found out J.J. Watt was coming to the team, I was doing cartwheels. (laughs) Yeah, listen, if you're a Cardinals fan, good for you. I'm a Giants fan. We don't have a lot of love. Uh, (laughs) There are a lot of Giants fans on Long Island, but Daniel Jones isn't doing great. We need an offensive line. We almost won our division with a six and ten record. That's right. <laughs> That's and not good. I I just have to ask because I don't get to talk about football with a lot of people. Um, are you? Do you follow football a lot, or are you kind of like where where are you at with that? Like, do you follow follow? I don't follow follow, but I will like I do fantasy football. So like yeah. I watch certain players. I watch certain teams. Do did you do you follow the draft? Not really. Because I was going to say, if you're a Giants fan, what was it like when you, when you heard the name Jan- Daniel Jones being selected? Because I know that uh, a lot of YouTubers who are Giants fans, their reactions were quite the opposite of excited. Oh, yeah. 
it seems to be a New York thing to be very disappointed with your drafting. Yeah. Um, if you're an if you're a Knicks fan, you'll remember from 2016 when they drafted Porzingis fourth overall, and you could hear <laughs> the hatred and sadness in everyone. I, and what's so crazy? I'm not a basketball fan, and it was such a a reaction that even I knew about it. Like, yeah. I, I don't give a rat's booty about basketball. But all I heard was how Christoph Porzingis got booed out of the building. I, isn't he, like, a good player? He's a good player. He's a good player. Not on the Knicks. He's on the Mavericks now. Oh, the um, But, no, I remember. I wasn't paying attention to basketball at that point, but my dad called me, and he's like, the Knicks just drafted some guy from Latvia. I was like, What? <laughs> You get the, you get your highest overall pick in how many years, and you draft this guy who you don't know is gonna be good or not. Mm. But he turned out pretty good. And then they got rid of him when he wasn't on the Knicks. Right. Uh, I I the I love. Uh, do you know Rich Eisen? I do not. So Rich Eisen is a very popular uh, sports media host. Um, he holds a show every week called The Rich Eisen Show. He's an active member of NFL Network. Um, and he is an avid Knicks fan. And he had, uh, I'll never forget it, he, he's had like, a, his, his career's gone on for a very, for a very long time. Um, he's, I think he was a fan of the Knicks when uh, the Patrick Ewing uh, era was okay. around. So he's, been, so he's been through it all. A while. And uh, so he was there when James Dolan took over the team. And I only know one thing about the Knicks, and that's James Dolan. And I know about James Dolan from Rich Eisen, because he rants about him almost every week. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing that most sports channels are broadcasted from New York, because you get all these people who have, like Rich Eisen, Stephen A. Smith, oh. and all you do... Every week you hear something about the Knicks. Something about the Knicks. I and it, it doesn't, to go back to film for a second, Spike Lee, one of the biggest oh Knicks God. fans ever. Oh. It's kind of turning against the Knicks. It's like, well, the story of how they treated him that basically escalated this whole problem, I was shocked. Yeah. Because apparently, like, when it comes to investing money in the team when from a fan base, he's been... Either up there or the top guy, through like thirty years, getting yeah. side getting side seats to the court or whatever it is. Yeah, he's been up front from the good and the bad, and for like one day for them to treat him differently, you know, I I would be surprised as well. And I just feel like they handled that incorrectly, and I just think James Dolan is the reason why the Knicks are being held back. And I don't mean to disrespect your team, but it's you know. okay. Listen. Most people probably know Drake as like the biggest like celebrity super fan now for the Toronto Raptors. Spike Lee was the Drake before Drake. He was he was Drake before Drake, and now I feel like he has the spotlight because Spike Lee has kind of taken a backseat to being a fan. And on the record of ownership, Arizona has had terrible ownership for a very long time, um, and so to the point that Arizona has become infamous. For kind of being the retirement home for football players like Emmett Smith was a Cardinal player for a while Carson um, Palmer Carson but see like that's different because he actually was good yeah uh, but I, I'm, I'm talking about like pre 2014 13 mm. 
like people would come to Arizona, play for a lot of money, and then retire. And there's a guy on YouTube who makes videos about sports called Urinating Tree. He's very funny. Um, not for kids under 18, so uh, just watch out for that. Um, but he he's very, you know, he makes really funny things. He calls the Cleveland Browns the factory of sadness. Um, I don't think he can call them that anymore after their fantastic run from last year. Um, but there's some truth to our ownership became kind of known for signing older, out-of-touch players. And this year, when we high, when we signed J.J. Watt, when we signed A.J. Green, um, in my opinion, I think they're pieces that are going to bring this team a championship. And right. I, I, I think in the next three years, we can make a great run. But there is truth that previously, uh, our team would sign older people for the wrong reasons. And I think now people are jumping on the, oh, Arizona's doing what they do. They, they sign old people to retire. I think it's different this time. And I think you'll, we'll find out about that hopefully next September. And I am, I'm just ready. I just want football back. Right. Yeah. I can't wait for football to be back too. Like you just said, like Arizona used to be like, oh, where people want to go to retire. That's how I felt at the NHL. My sister and I would always talk about how uh, the Red Wings, they always have like these old players and specifically like, old swedish players so we would swedish players yeah so we would nickname detroit as the uh the team where swedes go to uh end their career i love it that's amazing are you a hockey fan i am i'm a blackhawks fan okay i'm like a i'm like an on the nose sad casual islanders fan that's (laughs) i only show up when they're doing good you know like and as a diehard cardinals fan like those kind of fans anger me so I'm sorry, diehard Islander fans, diehard Ranger fans. Like, I'm not in that group. If you're winning, yay. If you're losing, oh, I don't give a crap, you know. Um, but Sad on the nose Islanders <laughs> fan. That was what came off my brain, so. <laughs> All right. So before we run too long, I am going to do one more thing, and you're going to get a recommendation okay. from me based off of what I know. Okay. based off of the movie you've brought to discuss and it's a movie that i also know okay this movie i literally just did a podcast on last week i can't wait to hear it we're gonna do signs by m night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. well that's really interesting because i've never watched an m night Shyamalan fan uh, movie front to back ever since i watched that movie that i will never talk about you're talking about a certain movie from 2010? Yes. That, oh. Uh, based off of the hit anime of the same name? That Kind uh, of? That kind of carried my entire childhood and re- significantly influenced my story writing, especially for tragic villain plots, which in my opinion had the greatest character arc in history in season three. Um, but hey, that's all water on the Yeah, page. that's maybe, maybe it's a time, movie. Maybe it's time to consider watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie, and you said it's Signs? It's Signs uh, before this movie that you just mentioned came out. I'm not going to mention what the name of this movie is. That we don't talk about. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it. Maybe we can talk about it some other time, but if probably not. If you a podcast for like so bad it's funny movies, I that'd be that would not be one of them because it doesn't <laughs> make me laugh. It makes me angry. So let's not talk about that movie. Yeah. So 2002, this is uh, after Unbreakable and after The Sixth Sense where... Funny enough, yeah, funny enough, after The Sixth Sense, people compared M. Night Shyamalan to Steven Spielberg. That's right. Well, and for a he kind of had 
he had back to back to back great movies. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, it's like he fell downstairs. Yeah, like after the village, the lady in the water I haven't seen. I don't know about it. The happening I've heard is garbage. I was going to, uh, you, you mentioned it already, but if there was a movie that you would watch to just kick back and maybe have a drink even and go, what the heck am I watching? It's the happening. It's the happening. Because literally throughout the film, you'll be going, what's happening? Yeah. Like, it's just so bizarre and it's so fascinating. And I think it really tr- shows how polarizing his career is because on one hand, you'll have uh, you'll have movies from Shyamalan that are like, oh my goodness, these are great. And then on the other hand, you're like, this is like a tire fire. What's happening right now? Yeah, like uh, I remember you mentioning before when we were talking about Jaws. Oh yeah, this is a Jaws podcast. But yeah, we're at the end of this podcast, so this is my recommendation time. Uh, yeah, when you were talking about Jaws, you were talking about, oh yeah, isn't nature great? Apparently not in this movie, it's not. Yeah, like it's... It's a significant part of the plot, and basically, from spoilers, what I understand is that basically nature gets tired of humanity doing stuff, and so it just starts killing people. We're probably on that direction already. Honestly, dude, like, if Godzilla suddenly showed up and started wrecking stuff, I wouldn't be surprised, but it's just like, that would make more sense than the than the happening plot, because it just... I have no words for it. It's just a movie you have to sit down and watch. Yeah. So back to Signs. Yes, back to Signs. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, Signs I'm recommending to you because it actually gives me, when I was watching it, it gave me a lot of Jaws vibes. You say you see a lot of references in it. Like, um, Signs is clearly an Aliens movie. It's not a uh, movie about a shark. I was going to ask if there's a shark in the movie. That'd be very interesting. Well, you know, you said that it had a lot of resemblance, so I was just assuming. Was there, like, a space shark? No. Okay. Um, No, uh, this movie is about aliens coming down to Earth and basically wanting to kill humanity. Similar to how Bruce, the shark, wanted to kill humanity in this movie. Um, Where it comes to references, uh, you see one of the main characters uh, do a lot of research on these things through the books. Similar to how Chief Brody does with the uh, sharks. Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. It's okay, I had a couple moments. And um, another thing is um, you don't see the aliens as often as you would expect to see in this movie. Okay. Very similar to how Bruce is rarely seen in Jaws. And what year did M. Night Shyamalan release Signs? Signs came out in 2002. Okay. I, I just, I, I can't remember when his career started. So I was just curious, like, how long it had been before he, he's, uh, you know, he started. So this movie came out in 2002. His first feature length movie was The Sixth Sense in 1999. Okay. So, so three so years into his. So yeah, so like late 90s is probably when he started. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Funny enough, his career kind of reminds me of how uh, Jaws and that tr- franchise happened. First couple movies, really good, and then he just kind of yeah. went south. Yeah, the only difference when it comes to this movie is, or his career is, he's kind of made a resurgence with, uh, starting with The Visit. The Visit, I saw it, it was pretty good. Okay, uh, that's good. I've heard Split is really good. 
I heard Split was a phenomenal movie. Glass is... Eh, I liked Glass. Some people don't like Glass. I, I heard it was a very... Uh, it was a very fun crossover. Um, but maybe not, like, the best story-wise. Story right. And he's coming out with a new movie soon called... Sorry, as I look it up. Is it, isn't, it a sh- isn't it a show, or is that something different? I think he's, uh, he has a show called Servant, but this year, apparently, he's coming out with a movie called Old. Old. He also had a movie, I think, last year about, like, an island, and it was, like, basically, um, it's, like, a island paradise place, and something happens where, like, the people on the island are suddenly aging rapidly. Well, that's the new movie that's coming out called Old. Oh, is that really it? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. I've seen the trailer, and it intrigues me. It really does. I uh, I, I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I would be interested to see how the process of aging is explained. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and after watching Signs, maybe I'll have a little M. Night Shyamalan run for myself. That's definitely... Um... A trip you'll be on. Well, good or certain, bad. There are certain things that I will try my best to avoid. Yes. Uh, so that's the end of this episode. Thank you for being on. Uh, please, if you're listening still, good for you. Yeah, you made it through. I don't know how long you've been going, but. Uh, I don't know. Hey. This doesn't give me minutes, it gives me seconds. Okay, well, how many seconds is it? I don't know. What is 2,784? <laughs> well, that's a lot. Um, some You divide it by 60, and I know that's like a, every minute, but, you know, that's a lot of math, and I'm not here for math. I'm here to talk about stuff. Yeah, so thank you for sticking to the end. Go watch Jaws if you haven't. Yes, please. And uh, if you have the opportunity, uh, make sure to to subscribe and follow this podcast he is doing a phenomenal job and i truthfully hope to be a a regular on this show thank you very much i hope so too uh would you like where can people find you so i'm actually kind of off the grid i'm not very uh i'm not very uh active on social media but if you are interested in keeping up with my work um i do have a youtube channel that's under my name caleb anderson Uh, it has a photo of me in high school when i did not have a beard um, and that's where I post a lot of my uh, shorts or anything like that. So if you are interested in what's going on, you can definitely check that out. And then I am on Instagram, uh, Anderson underscore reborn. Okay. And if you want to follow this podcast, you can follow it on Spotify under Nick's Midnight Premiere. And on Instagram, Nick's Midnight Premiere, no apostrophe and underscores instead of spaces where I try to post regularly now. Anyway, this has been Nick's Midnight Premiere. I've been Nicholas Muir, and that's been Caleb Anderson. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, everyone. This is Frank. Uh, I apologize for getting this episode out to you guys so late. Uh, I have been editing this very infrequently for the past few months now. Uh, I've been bogged down by work, and a lot of other things have been going on in my life. Uh, And again, I'd like to apologize for that. But I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope you guys had a wonderful time. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, Nick's guest, uh, Caleb Anderson. Uh, please make sure, like uh, Nick said, follow the page on Instagram at 
Nix underscore midnight underscore premiere. That's at Nix underscore uh, midnight underscore premiere. Uh, and uh, yeah, follow us on Spotify and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Uh, take care.